Well, we have been uh, working our way through the Exodus story, and we're going to read that together just now. So, uh, if we take our Bibles, we'll turn to Exodus chapter 14. Our uh, boys and girls are going to be thinking about this in kids' ministry, story of the crossing of the Red Sea, and uh, we're going to read Exodus chapter 14 together just now. It's page 71 if you've got one of the Red Pew Bibles, and we'll read the whole chapter Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi-Hiroth between Migdal and the sea. They are to camp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, uh, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with them. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and There were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud on the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, 
stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. When the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and in Moses, His servant. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us this His Word, John. Well, I invite you to come to Exodus chapter 14. And as we turn it up, Nigel, I don't know, should I suggest to Jillian that we should go on the morning of the wedding and pull some potatoes? That would be good. <laughs> see how that goes down. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah, could be an interesting suggestion. <laughs> well, come with me to Exodus chapter 14. And uh, as, as Nigel said, we've been making our way through Exodus, so if you're joining in with us today and you want to catch up on all that's gone before, you can get that online. Uh, but we're in Exodus chapter 14 here this morning. And our, our way through Exodus, it's a huge book, obviously, in the Old Testament. We've been thinking about it under these terms. God hears, God speaks, God rescues, God speaks again, God speaks again, again, God comes down. So that's Exodus in six little sayings. Uh, you can say that you've mastered it. If anyone ever puts you on the spot, what's Exodus all about? You can say those big things. God hears, God speaks, God rescues, God speaks again, God speaks again, again, God comes down. Now, where are we this morning? In Exodus chapter 14, we're in God rescues, okay? So God has heard, God has spoke, and now God rescues. So here's the question for us this morning as we come to this. Can God save? It's a fundamental question that we have to think about. Can He save? Because people regularly say this, and they've said it to me, God wouldn't want me. It's too late for me. If only you knew what I have done, John, then you would know that God wouldn't want anything to do with me. Can God save? Can this God that we worship save me today and all of the things that I have done wrong and fallen short in? Can He save you and all of the things that you have fallen short in, all of the decisions and mistakes, all of the things that you wish that you could take back, can God save today? Well, hold that question because that's what we're going to think about as we step through Exodus chapter 14. What's God been doing? God has been working amongst His people to try and, and show them who He is, to try and show the Egyptian people who He is. And if you're thinking about a verse that unlocks what's going on in Exodus, because it can get complicated at times, remember a few weeks ago we said it's chapter 6 and verse 7. Chapter 6 of Exodus and verse 7 tells us what is going on. If we get lost sometimes in the detail, this is where we come back to Exodus chapter 6 verse 7. I will take you to be my people. You see, God doing a work. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. 
and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. It's all relationship, isn't it? The Lord bringing His people into relationship with Himself. So, that's what He's doing. He's taking a people. He's showing them Himself. He's making sure that they know that He is the Lord. You see, in Exodus, God just doesn't tell us what He is like, but He also shows us what He is like. And so, He speaks, and then He shows And today we're going to see how that's demonstrated for us in this famous crossing of the Red Sea. Some people will try to say that this is the Reed Sea, that it was a spelling mistake, and that the the Israelite people passed through a, a marshy bit of ground, that the water was at most six inches deep. Well, if that's the truth, then I don't know how Uh, the whole Egyptian army and their chariots and horses happen to be drowned in six inches of water, right? It's nonsense, so don't listen to that interpretation. This is the Red Sea. The Lord did split the sea open, and the Israelites really did walk through on dry ground. So, let's see three things as we think about Exodus chapter 14 here this morning. The first is this, the difficult path, the difficult path, verses 1 through 14. Recently, uh, I was driving to see a friend of mine. He lives in a Manson County Down, and uh, as per usual, I was running a little bit late, and so you're, you're trying to stay within the speed limits, but you're trying to push it right to the, the speed limit, and so you don't have time to think about what's the best way to go here. You're just throwing on sat-nav, and you're listening to the sat-nav. Whatever a sat-nav says, uh, whatever the voice says, take left, take right, you have no time to think. You just do it. It's like being on a stage for a rally as you take the hard, sharp corners and try to remember to indicate. And, and I'm flying along this main road, and suddenly uh, Mrs. Satnav or Mr. whatever the voice is in mine says, take, take off this main road onto a side road. And so you go down this side road, and you think, this is interesting. I'd rather be on a main road. And then you end up on a smaller road, and a smaller road again, The white lines disappear. There's grass in the middle of the road, and you think, really, is this the best way to get to this place, whatever I'm running very tight for time? And then eventually you make it to your destination, and you realize that Google, in all of its wisdom, decided to take you around all of the back roads whenever you could have stayed on the main road and simply arrived at the house. And you're like, what are you doing? Look at the stress that you've caused me along this journey. You make it to your destination, and you think, what has been happening? What has been going on? Well, in chapter 14, look at what happens. The people are en route out of Israel, out of Egypt. The Israelites are en route out. You see how the Lord has been protecting them. Look at chapter 13, verses 17 and 18. He won't let them go out near the Philistines in case war breaks out, and so He's protecting them. He's telling them when to turn left and when to turn right. They're being guided with the pillar of cloud and with the pillar of fire. And then in chapter 14, verse 1, and in verse 2, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. Lord, what are you doing to turn back? Lord, what, what do you want us to do here? Are you mad? If, if we turn back, then surely the, the chances of the Egyptians catching us are much, much higher. If they change their mind, they'll come after us. Why would you take us back to, to Migdal, an Egyptian outpost? Why would you take us there, Lord? We're going to be sitting ducks. We're going to have our backs to the sea. We're going to be easy targets. Lord, what are you doing? 
And then in verse 4, I'm going to use this. I'm going to use this to get glory over Egypt, to get glory over Pharaoh. You need to trust me that I am working this out for my glory to speak to this nation. And so you got to trust me. And so in the midst of this uh, satnav direction that's going on from the Lord, and the Israelites starting to wonder what's going on, what happens back in, in Egypt? Look at verse, uh, the next few verses, uh, verses 5 through 9. 600 uh, chariots are readied, verse 6, so he made his chariot and took his army with him. Pharaoh says, let's go after them. We've made a mistake. Let's get the Israelites. Let's either kill them or enslave them, but they're not going to walk out of our land. You see, we're told earlier in in chapter 12 that they actually go with a mixed multitude. Some of the Egyptians go with them. They've also taken some of the goods out of Egypt. And so there's there's a hardness comes again to Pharaoh. And remember who he is. He's the, the representative head of the serpent of Satan himself. And so here he says, let's Let's go after them. And what does he do? He gets 600 of the best chariots and then all of the other chariots. Do you notice that? He's going with the full force of this superpower. It would be like uh, the United Kingdom arriving up with all of their Challenger three tanks, 600 of them, and then all of the other smaller tanks in behind. Or the, the United States of America with all of their best tanks going out onto the battlefield. The Israelites face an assault of evil. Darkness pursues them, hunts them down, and furrows the seed of the serpent. He hates God's people. He hates God. He wants to kill them or to enslave them. You remember this big battle we keep talking about that's been raging from Genesis all the way into Exodus and all the way through the Scriptures? the seed line of the serpent and the seed line of the woman at loggerheads with one another, trying to overrun the other. And so here's Pharaoh trying to come as Satan's representative, a figure of the serpent to try and kill the seed, God's seed, the seed of the woman. And what's the conclusion of it all? Well, verse 10, the Israelites are full of fear. They're full of fear. They're stirring death in the face. They're stirring punishment and the chains of slavery in the face. And in verse 11 and in verse 12, they waver and they wobble. They say to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You see how quickly they they flip-flop back against God? They waver and they wobble. And our immediate reaction to the Israelites is to judge them. Oh, come on. The Lord has been leading you with a pillar of cloud and with a pillar of fire. He's taken you out of Egypt. He's displayed himself in ten signs and wonders, and now you're, you're saying at the first little hurdle, Lord, what are you doing? You're turning your back on the Lord. But let's not be too quick to judge them, because 
for us, I think we're much, much more like the Israelites than sometimes we think. The Lord blesses us. He's doing a good work in our lives. He's saved us by grace, and we're on this pathway. It might be a difficult path, but we're on the path, and that the first sign of a difficulty in our life, what do we do? The first thing that we do is we, we go against the Lord. We flip-flop against Him. We, we say, Lord, what are you doing? Why have you, why have you done this to me? And it, it doesn't take very much. It doesn't take 600 chariots or 600 tanks to be coming towards us with the full weight of a, of a of a nation's superpower, we start to ask, Lord, what are you doing? We're better off without you. Where's your goodness whenever simple things happen? I was trying to think, what, what causes me in, in, in my heart to do it? When your car breaks down, you, you, you need to be at a meeting, and you get a flat tire, and, and isn't it true that we turn around and say to the Lord, Lord, what are you doing? I need to be somewhere in 10 minutes and I've got a flat tire. Or I've got so much on this week and m- my car's broken down. Lord, what are you doing to me? What, what, what are you at? Or something as simple as going up the town without an umbrella and it starts to lash and you think, Lord, what are you doing? I'm soaked. Now I'm going to have to go home and get a shower and get a new change of clothes. Or when your flight's delayed, or the internet won't work, or the printer's broken again, and you start to think, Lord, what are you doing? And that's the little silly, trivial things that cause us to do that. And then we walk in life's path, and lots more difficult things come, things that are are big challenges in our life, and they have the exact same reaction. We're quick to ask the Lord, Lord, what are you doing? We're quick to feel in our belief of His promises. He had promised the people that they would be safe, that He would take them out, that He would protect them and watch over them, and yet the people doubt Him. They turn back at the first sight of hostility. And so, in difficult circumstances, isn't it true that we turn away from God? We stop living for Him and to give Him the glory? He'd already told the Israelites, look in verse 4, I will get glory over Pharaoh. Don't worry. In our trials, as we walk a difficult path in this life, I wonder, does God get the glory in the midst of our trials? I wonder, do we seek to magnify and exalt His name even in the most difficult of circumstances, or are we quick to try and forget Him? John Currid, an Old Testament scholar, says this. He says, if only we could look upon each of our trials and persecutions as an occasion for God to be more greatly honored and glorified. It's a change of perspective, isn't it? How can we glorify God in the midst of this difficulty? How can we speak to the world in a different way in the midst of our difficulty? Lord, this is a a tough path that you have laid out for me. It's a difficult path that you have laid out for me. But how can I glorify you? You see, the truth is that God is still the guide, even in the difficult path and the easy path. Isn't that what Psalm 23 teaches us? I will lead you beside still waters, but He will also lead us into the valley of the shadow of death. And God is sovereign in both, and He is with us in both, present with us in both, the guide and the leader in both. 
He is our sovereign companion upon this difficult road of life. But more than that, our second point is that He is also our saving companion. Verses 13 through 20, He's our saving companion. The greatest companion that you can have as you face difficulty is the one who says, step aside and I'll sort the problem. You're faced with a difficulty and they say, step aside, I've got the expertise, I'll sort it out. Well, in Exodus, what do we have? The attention is not on Moses, but it's on God who's working to do what? To save His firstborn son, is how he refers to Israel. The Lord steps in like a fowler, and he hides his son behind him, and he steps forward into the fray. Verse 13, fear not, son, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Stand, see, be silent. All you have to do is do nothing. You stand back and you watch. Watch the great I am. Remember, he revealed himself as such. Watch the great I am work salvation for my people. Watch my mighty arm at work. Watch as the great I am crushes the strength of this earthly superpower who thinks that they can rule over God. Watch as the great I am strikes the seed of the serpent who tries to kill my son. Watch and watch me rescue and save and deliver and bring you life. Just stand, be silent, and see. And his hand comes as a quieting hand upon the son, the son who trembles. And so we know that, that here in this crossing that the people are delivered. We know that there's a rescue, that God separates the two groups of people, those who are His people, His covenant, covenantal people, and He rescues them, and then those that He doesn't. But what we do not want to miss is that here God is exercising judgment. It's very important for where we're going to go in a few moments. Here He's exercising judgment. The Egyptian people had done what? They had witnessed ten signs and wonders in their nation. The Lord doing things that no one else could ever do. And yet they still reject God. They refuse to follow. They refuse to bow down. And they refuse to worship. And so the Lord takes His people to the edge of the sea. Look at verse 16. He tells Moses, lift up your staff, stretch it out, and the waters will divide. Verse 19, the angel of God goes, uh, who was going before them goes behind them to shepherd them through. Verse 22, the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters were a wall to them on their right and to the left. The waters that protect Israel like a wall will be the same waters that will judge Egypt in just a few moments. And so look at verse 25. As the Egyptians pursue them, their wheels start to clog. And then in verse 28, the waters returned and covered the chariots. Not one of them remained. The Lord's judgment crashes in on the nation of Egypt. It will take Egypt many generations until Solomon and after Solomon before they restore their military power. 
And Tim Chester says this. He says, the corpses in the water were a sign to Egypt that God is God. You can see the sight, can't you? All the, all the Israelites have just made their way through, and body after body washes up at the sight of the sea. A sign that God is God and that He is not to be messed with, that He is the judge. And so for this nation, the waters of judgment sweep upon them, cover them, and take them to their death. It's salvation and judgment. It's mercy and justice at play. And so God's children emerge, and the wonderful thing in, in Exodus that we can miss is that it's been structured in the Hebrew to show a new creation narrative. So as the, as the children of Israel come out of the sea, it's the, it's the rebirth of this nation, the, the, the birthing of the nation. It's cast in the same style as Genesis. Day one, light and darkness, the pillar of presence. Day two, the waters are divided. Day three, the dry land emerges. And so Tim Chester again says that God unravels His creation in order to recreate His people. That, that's what the Lord's doing. It's, everything has broken down in Genesis in, in the Garden of Eden. And so as He takes now His, his son, His firstborn son, He takes them, He brings them through the waters, He gives birth to them again, He takes them into the wilderness to, to bring them to where? To bring them into a place like Eden at the tabernacle, a place of worship the tabernacle constructed in a way that re represented Eden with all of its imagery. It was set with gold, silver, and bronze, uh, even though it was on a horizontal level to represent height because Eden was on a mountain and the rivers flowed out of it. You see, God doing a new work, a birthing work for His people. The saving companion who is leading His people home but the simple question is, is he your saving companion this morning? See the destruction that God's judgment brings upon this pagan nation of Egypt. See the, the death, the judgment, the gavel falls. See the deliverance of the Israelite people. And see our God the one who rescues and saves, the greatest companion that anyone can ever have. And Isaiah 43 picks up on this. In the authorized version, it says this, Isaiah 43, verse 2, when I passeth through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. And when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. The Lord with His people, the greatest companion, the saving companion. And so when we walk through the difficult path of life, what do we need to know? We need to know that our saving, sovereign companion is there with us 
every step of the way. And where does this all reach its conclusion? Where does this Exodus story all reach its climax? If it's the picture book of salvation, what is it painting a picture of? What is the sketch of? Well, it's of the greater Exodus. That's where the Bible's heading. That's where we're going towards in the New Testament. And that's our final point, the greater Exodus. You see, we can't just stop on Exodus 14 this morning. We have to follow and trace it through Scripture right to the last because the greater Exodus comes. This time, what's God going to do? He's not going to work just a physical deliverance. He's going to work a spiritual deliverance, not just for some people, but for people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. He's going to take them out of the bondage and the the chains of sin and bring them into freedom and new life. They're going to be born again and promise that Eden will be restored. You see the same themes repeating and repeating and repeating. And with Christ, we have the Son of the Father sent, the sovereign, saving Son. And this time, the the Son will come, and He'll not just crush a representative of the serpent. This time, whenever Christ comes, Exodus 2.0, He crushes the serpent once and for all. At the cross of Calvary, he crushes the serpent's head. Deliverance for his people. For all whom the Father have given to him, he comes to rescue. And waters, here's where we want to take this with the waters. Waters throughout the Old Testament have been a sign of judgment. The waters of judgment, a mark of judgment. Israel deemed them to be a place of chaos and evil. But what happens in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, in Mark chapter 10 and verse 38, Jesus describes the cross as going through the the baptismal waters for him. It's a different baptism from ours. And so he is saying that, and, and Paul takes it in 1 Corinthians as well, and says that we've been baptized into the same baptism as Moses, in that he's saying these waters, these walls of great water, as the people walked through the Red Sea, there were walls of salvation for some, but there were walls of judgment for others. And the only way that you and I can walk through the waters of baptism or have the waters of baptism upon us is if someone takes the judgment waters upon themselves. And so what does Christ do as he descends into death? He takes the judgment waters upon himself. The walls of water crash down upon him so that his people can walk through and emerge in dry land. So as Jesus sinks down into death, he then rises. He comes out of these waters And He leads us then safely through so that we may pass through and no judgment fall on us. Jesus allowed the waters to crash upon Him and take Him into death so that we could walk through the water safely. And so the water that we experience in baptism is a sign of this. It's pointing us to what the Lord has done, His salvation, how He is our saving companion. As He told us to stand back and to be still and just see, watch what I will do. Behold, repent, and believe.
And so as we go through the baptismal waters as an adult or as a child, they represent, they point us to this, what Christ has done. Not about ourselves, but about what He has done. And so as we walk through life, as we walk through this difficult path, what do we need to know? We need to look at our baptism as an adult or as a child and say, look at what Christ did my sovereign companion, my saving companion, the one who will lead me safely home. Look at how He's here with me, what He has done for me, and that should cause us great joy. With this, we're finished. Verse 31, look at how Israel respond. They respond to the power of the Lord, and they feared Him. And then in chapter 15, they're led into singing in this song of Moses. They see what the Lord has done, how He has rescued them. Even though they fainted and failed, what He has done for them, and they rejoice. And that's our call today, to see this great deliverance and to see then Christ and the greater deliverance that He brings for us, the greater freedom, the greater rescue that He brings, and our response is joy and to sing His praise. Lord, thank You for washing us. Thank You for taking the judgment waters upon Yourself. Thank you for uniting me to your Son. Thank you for my sovereign, saving companion who will take us home. Is the Lord able to save today? Of course, He's able to save you. Is God willing to save you today? Yes. He sent His only Son to take you out of bondage and slavery and to take you through the water safely to Him into the promised land, and all that awaits you. Will you call upon His name? Will you trust Him today for the very first time? Will you know His joy as you sing His praise? Our God rescues. And praise Him that He rescues sinners like me and you. Let's bow for a moment. And then we're going to sing together. Father in heaven, we thank you that what we see in Exodus is a sketch for what we have in full color in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that today that you are the God who saves, that you're the God who is willing to save all who will call upon your name. And we thank you that you are the one who is able, that Jesus, through your sacrifice upon the cross of Calvary, through your shed blood, that we can have our sins forgiven, and through your resurrection, that we have the hope of eternal life. On the difficult path of life, would we know you as our sovereign companion? Would we know you as our saving companion? And would we know you as the one who will lead us home. Lord, you've been so good to us. Keep us from grumbling. Keep us from turning back against you. And Lord, seal us again with the Holy Spirit so that we may live for your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.